It's my privilege to stand before you this morning with the responsibility of preaching God's Word. Oh, can you hear me? I can hear myself. Um, it is good to be together. I'm very much aware of the need for God's help, though. So uh, as we start our time together, let me pray and ask for God's help. Dear Heavenly Father, it is an awesome thing to be given the responsibility of coming to your word, both to preach it and also to sit under it and listen and have our lives transformed by it. So I pray very much this morning that you would help me to preach, help us all to hear, and by your mercy and by your grace, Lord, grant us your Holy Spirit so that we can be transformed by your word working in us, more into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. For his glory we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm sounding very loud to myself. Am I loud to everybody else as well? No? Okay. Well, I'll just keep talking. If I start getting funny looks, I'll, uh, it's either my accent or uh, the volumes are still playing up. Well, if you're new to us, then uh, I should start off by saying that we are continuing our series today, um, going through the, the letter to the, the Thessalonians, First Thessalonians uh, in the New Testament. That's typically how we work our way through the Bible, a King of Grace church. Um, we understand all of Scripture to be God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for correcting training, us in righteousness. And we find the best way to do that is to tackle a whole book of the Bible, one book at a time, um, lead us through it in expositional preaching um, so that we cover everything in the entirety of a book and then move on to something else, another book, um, that's over and perhaps a different alternative would be through topical preaching where um, perhaps picking topics week to week. Uh, we do that once in a while uh, as that would serve us as a congregation. Um, but one of the things that preaching all the way through a book helps us is it protects us uh, in several different ways. One of the things is it protects you from um, just hearing the, the favorite topics of your pastors um, because we are duty-bound to preach everything that's in Scripture. It also helps us to protect us against simply speaking into the cultural preferences that may be uh, the flavor of the month or the year. Uh, again, we bring God's word and we want to sit under that. It also means that we come to passages which sometimes are uncomfortable or difficult to preach and we don't shy away from them. And uh, today's passage is one of those subjects. Uh, it tackles the subject of sexual immorality. And it's my job to be faithful. It is, is everyone's job to sit, seek to sit under God's word. Um, and I'm going to endeavor to be frank and addressing this subject without being graphic. Um, I recognize that we have uh, some young folk among us. And for you, this may be a topic which um, you're not even unsure what the heck I'm talking about. And that's a good thing. Um, I hope that this actually creates context and opportunity for good conversations at home. And it may be as well that you're not ready to even to tackle some of the, the, the elements that are, lie within this subject. I remember a story that Corrie ten Boom told in her book, The Hiding Place. Um, it's a great little story of when she was a very little girl and she said to her dad, she was reading through the Bible herself, and she said, Dad, what, what is meant by sexual sin? Because she was reading in her Bible and her dad didn't answer her directly. Instead, he pointed over, his tool, over to his toolbox and he said, um, Sweetheart, could you pass me my toolbox? And uh, Corrie ten Boom, she, little girl, she went over to the toolbox and she couldn't pick it up. And she said, Daddy, I can't bring you the toolbox. It's too heavy. And so he said to her, Sweetheart, um, some subjects that are in God's word are like that. They are too heavy um, for young minds and young hearts to, to wrestle with. But as you grow in maturity and grow in strength, then you'll be ready to pick them up. And it's my job as your dad to, to help you grow and be ready for that time. So that may be the place where you're at uh, as well. It may be that you're just not ready, and that's perfectly fine. Um, talk at home and discuss this, and I trust that in whatever, wherever you're at, this serves you. So all that to be said, let's turn to God's word and hear what he would say to us this morning in the letter of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 8. Uh, it would be projected if you don't have a Bible. Um, otherwise, uh, I encourage you to keep the Bible that you have with you open in front of you. We'll be looking at this passage um, throughout our time. 
So this is the Apostle Paul writing, and he says this, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, I've already given you context that this passage is being looked at this morning because we've been going through the letter of Thessalonians. Sorry. Um, but it's also important to understand the context uh, more fully for us to rightly understand the message that God has for us today. We need to understand who God is writing to, and we also need to understand what he's already written before we get to our passage in chapter 4. So quite obviously, first of all, he's writing to the Thessalonians uh, in Thessalonica in Greece. Um, most of them would be Greek in background. There would be some Jews potentially in the church who came to Christ. Um, but predominantly, these would be uh, Christians who have been called out of a Greek culture, and at that time, they had incredibly lax sexual ethics. Um, their culture at the time included pagan temple worship, which promoted, actively encouraged, sex with temple prostitutes, for example, in order to win favor with the gods that they believed in, to have a uh, great harvest or great crops. That was part of the culture in which they came out of. And as Christians, they're obviously called to a different set of ethics in that regard. Their ethics are now set by the God who has given them new life. And God knew that it was, for all of us, that the culture and society has an incredibly strong influence on us, on what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. And in response to those social pressures, God speaks a word specifically to the Thessalonians and uses Paul to urge them to resist the cultural norms that are around them, and to live distinctly different lives in this particular aspect. And far from being an interesting insight into ancient culture, I think this is incredibly relevant for us today. We live in Western civilization, which is under just as much um, impression from the culture around us regarding sexual ethics that we need to hear God's word very clearly today just as the Thessalonians did then. The other thing we need to understand from culture is what's gone before. This is chapter 4. There's three chapters beforehand. I can do the math. Um, and if you remember, you've been with us. Paul has spent three whole chapters encouraging the believers in Thessalon Thessalonica, exhorting them and commending them for their faith and for their love, their love for God, their love for each other, and their love even beyond the Thessalonian church. And now he wants to turn to speak words of exhortation to live transformed lives that reflect that love and their faith that he's been talking about. I think it's easy sometimes to come to passages like this or maybe take them out of context and import our own context. So you may hear a subject like this and immediately thoughts of guilt or failures in this area, either past or present, come to mind, and so a message like this, or this passage, perhaps simply serves to reinforce that sense of guilt. Or perhaps you're sitting outside of Christianity, looking in, and your sense is that Christianity is just this killjoy religion. No fun whatsoever, lots of do's and don'ts, and here's one big don't right here. Fun squasher. Okay? And if that's your characterization of the Christian religion, when you come to a passage like this, and perhaps this is the only Sunday you've come to hear us, I'm grateful that you're here, 
Um, but I just want to reinforce and say again, we come to this passage because we want to be faithful to all of God's word. And we've been through this letter, we come to this passage. It's in a context of speaking to a people who have done well in their faith. And God's commending to them and giving them boundaries and specifics on how to enjoy him and enjoy the new life that he gives us. It's not that this is Christianity's favorite topic to talk about all the time. Yes, the Bible does speak on all manner of sexual e- or Christian ethics. Um, it covers sexual ethics, yes. Um, but God wants to help us in every area of our lives. And so if you come to, to this church, if you come to any faithful Bible-preaching church regularly, you will hear the Bible speak to any matter of subjects on how to live out a Christian life as a parent how to live our Christian life in the workplace, how to handle your money in sight of God's authority over us, how to face trials and even death knowing God, and yes, how to handle your sexuality. So out of care for the Thessalonians and in recognition of the danger that was around them, God is caring for them through these words from Paul. And I'm grateful that he does because in the same way he's caring for us. He's caring for us as he speaks into our culture today. These words are not written as a word of rebuke over sin to the Thessalonians. God has commend, uh, sorry, Paul has commended the Christians. In, verse, in, in chapter 1 he speaks of your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has expressed his love and concerns for the believers like a gentle mother, if you remember, and like a caring father, both in chapter 2. And he's had a report back from Timothy that we heard about last week or in the last couple of weeks that told him firsthand of their love and their faith. And so he's taken great care to speak these words as an exhortation to continue to, in their walking before God and be alert to specific dangers and sins around them. In my my workplace as an industrial chemical manufacturer, there are inevitably various hazards around us. And as much as we can, we try to eliminate those hazards. Uh, but in some cases, you just have to simply put up safeguards. That's all you can do. And some of those safeguards are putting up warning signs, maybe warning signs with a description of what the danger is and maybe some pictures to, again, illustrate what the warning is. This is Paul putting up a, a warning sign, just saying danger. Just watch out. Be, ca- be careful here. I'm putting some text to explain what the hazard is so that the, the Thessalonians and us, we don't get hurt. That's the context of our passage. So let's dig into it. And we're going to see from the passage that Paul's call to us is to enjoy God's pleasure by walking in sexual purity. God's, Paul's call to us is to enjoy God's pleasure by walking in sexual purity. He starts off with two, sh- two brief words, finally then. You might think the finally is a little bit out of place, seeing he then goes on for two more chapters. Um, but it's really the translation. It's more just to say, okay, here's a new section. Here's I'm moving on to the final thing I want to tell you. What's, what's perhaps more important is the then piece. Because it then, that then ties us back into what went before it. And particularly, Paul has summarized kind of everything that went before in the last few verses of chapter 3, which um, Pastor Paul preached from last week. And I, I would like to read again, just again, set our context for today's verses. I have these to project, I think. But the last few verses, chapter, verse 11 of chapter 3, Paul says, Now may our God and Father himself, our Lord Jesus Christ, direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in, in what? In love? He's talked about building them up, increasing them in love. No, actually he says, they may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And you may know that the word saints in the New Testament can be translated simply as holy ones. So Paul is making this connection between the love that we've received from God and the love that we have for one another now playing out in our lives in the form of holiness. He goes on in the passage we're looking at today, 
Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. So clearly, Paul is not looking, Paul is not communicating here that we are trying to please God, like we might say we're trying to please our boss, for example, which usually means we're actually just not trying to displease our boss. And he's also saying that God's pleasure in us doesn't originate with our obedience. We already seen from the end of chapter 3, and Pastor Paul preached from this last week, that the basis of our relationship with God as Christians is God's love for us. Not our love for Him, first and foremost. Not our obedience for Him, first and foremost. But starts, first and foremost, with God's love for us. We actually see it in the beginning of this letter as well. If you have your Bible in front of you, just just flip forward to chapter 1. Verse 4 and 5, Paul writes, For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So our relationship with God is not like a boss who's easy to displease. He is our Heavenly Father who loves us. And it's not because we worked hard to obey a set of rules that we won God over to get his approval. Rather, the good news of the gospel that the believers in Thessalonica held to and Christians hold to today is that God won over disobedient rebels. Disobedient rebels like me and like you. God didn't wait around to see if anyone was going to seek after him. He knew that no one would if we were left to ourselves in our own self-centered ways, running after our own selfish interests. So in his plan, which he had in mind since the very beginning, beginning of his creation, instead he sent a perfect one, his perfect son, to walk out his commands and walk out in his ways and to experience and demonstrate a life lived totally in the pleasure of God. And yet, at the right time, according to the plan that they had made together, Jesus willingly gave up all of that. Gave up everything, life itself, and died on the cross. Taking on himself the sin of man, and then the judgment of God that was associated with that sin. That sin and that rebellion. And then three days later, rising to new life, and is now seated in heaven, ready to return at the last time to bring God's final judgment upon his creation. The believers in Thessalonica, as with believers here today, placed their trust in Jesus that his death was for them, that their sins were born on that cross, and God's wrath was poured out there, and that Jesus' new life is the new life that they now enjoy in him. And that's the same good news that we hold to as Christians today. That we can have our sins washed away, completely forgiven, and born in Christ upon the cross. And we have every confidence that we can have new life because we know Jesus had new life. And that the same new life is that we can know it today and going into all eternity. So verse 1 of our passage today speaks of walking and pleasing God like a child walking with their father. The father delighting in the child, walking in the ways that he's laid out for him. And the child delighting in the father's pleasure in his faulting progress. The pleasure isn't the basis of the relationship. Rather, the relationship provides the basis for the pleasure and the delight that each has in one another. Verse 2 goes on to give us more clarity on what walking with God and pleasing God looks like. And here it says he's given us instructions. The word really carries more weight and authority than simply instructions. They're more like commands. Commands that might come from a ruler or a military officer. It's why Paul makes such the appeal that he does in the beginning of verse 1. We ask you and we urge you. Notice that the emphasis here is not simply in Paul's words as well, although if it were Paul the Apostle, we need to listen to him. But he makes 
he's intentional to make emphasis that these aren't just coming from him. These are from the Lord Jesus. He says it in verse 1, and he says it again in verse 2. These aren't things that we can just take them or leave them. I'm going to pick and choose which ones I'm going to focus on. That one's hard, leave that one. Come to this one, that's easier. Or I like this one, not like that one. These are the Lord Jesus' words to us, and we need to submit ourselves to them. But likewise, that prompts us that when we are engaged with those around us in the world who perhaps need to hear this message just as much as we do, we don't need to be timid or reluctant to speak, particularly as if we are sharing our own ideas into this pool of everybody's ideas. We're simply sharing what God says. And if people have a problem with that, then they help, we help them realize that it's God's word that they have a problem with, not me. shouldn't really care what I say as long as it's only what God says. So how does Paul summarize God's will for his people? He does it in verse 3. This is the will of God for you, your sanctification. That's a theological term which just means your holiness. God's will for us is our holiness. So understanding the context of Paul's urging to walk out this relationship with God and to know God's pleasure and to grow in holiness, he moves on to a very specific area and category that he wants to help the Thessalonians realize that it's in this area you can walk out holiness. And it's in the area of sexual purity. And he says by this, he says in verse 3, you are to abstain from sexual immorality. I don't know, I'm not sure, um, you may have a different translation. Not all the translations kind of get the seriousness of this point uh, in the instruction. Some say something like, you should avoid sexual immorality. Uh, I don't know about you, but um, you should avoid that. Sounds to me like you should, dri- you should avoid driving over potholes. Um, but it doesn't really matter if you do it once in a while. The word carries a much stronger weight. In fact, it's repeated later on in chapter 5. Paul says, you should abstain from every form of evil. I can't imagine, if, I don't, if you can, God saying, you know, try to avoid evil. It's a good idea. Now, God is holy and good, and he wants us to avoid it completely. And in the same way, that is our approach to sexual immorality. And in the passage, he gives us three means to walk out sexual purity as Christians in a culture that is saturated in sexual immorality. The first we're going to look at is we are to enjoy God's pleasure in sexual purity through self-control. Verse 4 and 5 read, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Let me make just a little aside here because again, there's a really odd word in this passage and your translation, the translation you may have is not the ESV, may say something actually about wife rather than body. Take a wife for himself. Actually, the ESV notes that in a footnote. Um, there is a peculiar word which, which uh, isn't used much in the New Testament. It means vessel, and then there's commentators, some who say it means control your body. Other commentators say it means take a wife for yourself. Um, I'm not going to go into the detail. Uh, I respect the, trend, the commentators on both sides. Uh, me, per- personally, I think the ESV is right in saying it reflects about body. Um, But even if it really does mean take a wife for yourself, then really that's just a specific application of the broader principle which is still held in uh, taking control of our bodies. So if you'd like to read more about it, I can point you at any number of commentaries. Um, But let's go with what it says in the ESV. The culture around the Thessalonians had normalized, as I mentioned earlier, normalized sexual immorality. Um... The culture, it was a context of idolatry and worship of false idols, but it was just normal. And the voices that the Christians in that town would have been hearing would have been to say, you need to get used to it. This is normal. This is what we do. Hey, you even used to do it. It's no big deal. Everybody's doing it. Certainly, you shouldn't criticize us from doing it. And hey, once in a while, we perhaps encourage you to even try it yourself which really isn't much different from the voices we hear in our culture today. Voices that we need to be treating seriously and need to be alert to. 
Sometimes, though, they come far more subtly. You don't need to watch any number of movies or TV shows, and I'm not saying you shouldn't watch movies or TV shows. I enjoy watching them too. But you watch any number of movies and TV shows, and you'll be told that sleeping together outside of marriage isn't wrong. In fact, it's actually quite the opposite. Sexual intercourse, we're told in not so many words, is the highest and the most beautiful expression of love possible. And so it should be desired above all things and should be celebrated whenever it happens, regardless of what the context of that relationship is. True love, we are told, as well, is it's a far greater bond than marriage. So if one or two people are already in a loveless marriage, they should be allowed to go on with their lives, and if they find intimacy and love in another relationship, then that should be celebrated as well and respected. And then, of course, finally, if a couple falls out of love, then divorce is a perfectly adequate and a tidy solution to their relationship problems. All of these things can be swept together under the underlying assumption that our sexual desires are true and noble. They are natural and and good. They should be embraced and allowed to have full expression and that no one can say that we are wrong because, hey, I feel it. You feel the way you feel. I feel the way I feel. Let's go on and celebrate our lives the way we are made. Of course, exactly the same argument is used to normalize and legitimize same-sex relationships as well. Paul was concerned to make sure that in those voices, the voices we hear, the same voices they heard, that they hear a different voice, that they hear God's voice. And in the midst of cultural norms, God would have us hear a different voice too. The world is driven by passion of their lusts and lack of knowledge of God. Paul says so in verse 5. And only the one who has authority as our creator can speak to us and can we have confidence in hearing and understanding reliably in how we should conduct our lives. Verse 5, Paul talks about how the Gentiles, they're in their passion of lust and they do not know God. Now that phrase may trigger... Uh, recollection of somewhere else Paul writes to the Romans. In Romans chapter 1, he expands on this idea more broadly. I've got some verses to project on this. Talking about man's state apart from God. And he says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they came futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became Fools and exchange the glory of, God, of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions." Do you hear the similar notes and tones that Paul uses in this verse to the Thessalonians? They do not know God, and so they're given up to the lusts of their passions. In the fight to resist our culture directing us about sexual ethics, it's important to remember who speaks with authority in this matter. It is not the world, and it is not actually you and I either. It is only God who can lay a claim to saying what is right and wrong, what is good and wicked. Our moral compasses, apart from God, are broken, and they cannot be relied upon with confidence to direct us in the right path, which is why I'm incredibly grateful, and we should all be incredibly grateful, that God has given us his word to speak to us and to redirect those compasses in a way which we can have confidence we know which way is right and which way is not. As Christians, we are to submit ourselves, including our passions and our desires, to what God says is right and good and um, not good and, and wicked. Although it's not said here and brought out in this passage of Scripture, it is clear and consistent throughout Scriptures that the only right sexual expression 
that God intends for man is through selfless faithfulness in marriage between one man and one woman. I add in there selfless faithfulness because marriage is not simply the context where it's okay to express any and every sexual urge, but rather it is the context when a, love, a husband and a wife in submission before God submit their sexual desires and, and live them out to the full delight that he intends us to within the relationship of marriage. So for both married and single alike, God's word to us regarding sexual purity is that God is pleased when we exercise self-control over our passions and then we subject them to his authority and that we express them only as he has directed us to express them within marriage. Now, I expect that there are some here this morning for whom the call to self-control is incredibly discouraging because this is not new news to you. And you've been trying and you've been failing. But I want you to hear that there are encouragements for you in this passage today. We'll come on in a little while to the power God gives us for change. But I want you to see two things about self-control from the passage we've seen so far. Two things. The first is that as a universal command that God gives to his people, you can be assured that this is a universal struggle. You are not unique in your struggle. And you are not alone in your struggle. Certainly not everyone has the same struggles or at the same time of their lives. But having seen all of mankind from Genesis through to 1st century Greece through to 21st century America, God is neither surprised nor shocked by your passions and your lusts. And he's giving you a word and a way to bring them into submission to his will for your holiness so that you can know his pleasure. And the second thing to be aware of is that holiness doesn't start by us trying our hardest to be self-controlled. In fact, it doesn't actually start with us at all. The clue is in the comparison to the Gentiles who did not know God. Well, as Christians, we do know God. That should be our focus. God has shown himself to us in and through his son, Jesus Christ, and he's given us his word so that we can know him more and more. So I encourage you and exhort you, work at that. Work at knowing God, and you will find self-control flows as one fruit from that. The fight for self-control starts with knowing God, and so I encourage you, read your Bible and reflect on what it says to you about God's nature, God's character, who he is, the promises he holds for you. Take those in, reflect on them. Perhaps use some sort of systematic theology book to reflect on the attributes of God. And I recommend everyone read at some point in your Christian lives R.C. Sproul's book, The Holiness of God. It's an excellent book on that subject pertinent to today's topic. But if you're short on time and you have lower standards, I wrote a paper at the Pastors College a few years back considering the holiness of God as well, and I would be happy to give you copies of that paper if you would like it. Just see me. So we are to enjoy God's pleasure in sexual purity through self-control. Second thing we're to see is we're also to enjoy God's pleasure in sexual purity by loving our neighbor. In verse 6, Paul says that no one is to transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. It follows from what Paul has written earlier on how God has poured his love into us that makes us abound for love for him and overflows to love for everyone around us. And that gives us a means for sexual purity by considering our brother or our neighbor, basically anybody else around us. When we experience God's love shown to us, when we didn't deserve it, we find ourselves able to love those around us, even those we don't think deserve it, or those we don't know very well, we still find ourselves inclined to love them. And one obvious expression of that love is that we don't wrong another person through sexual immorality. Now, some 
expressions of sexual immorality clearly hurt other people. Certainly, adultery wrongs those bound together by the bonds of marriage, as does sex outside of marriage, which the old-fashioned word, which we don't use much nowadays, but perhaps we should, is fornication. Some translations use the words um, in verse 6, they say transgress and defraud your brother. And I like that word. It kind of suggests that in some ways sexual immorality steals something from those around you, that the other people involved, as if you're stealing perhaps somebody's virginity from their future husband or their future wife. One area here that I would like to just spend a little bit more time on, though, is the effect of pornography on our neighbor. Certainly, sexual immorality performed only with our eyes is not a 21st century sin. Jesus spoke to that very subject in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. But with the prevalence of technology, it has made the access to pornography easy and the ability to indulge in virtual sexual immorality commonplace. And we might be fooled into thinking, well, God's word doesn't really apply here. This is a new sin for a new, t- new age. God's word wasn't really up to date at that point because pornography doesn't hurt anybody. I can do this in secret without harming anyone. And so this, this exhortation to uh, not transgress or wrong my brother doesn't really apply. And if that's the tempting thought that presents itself to you, I would like to read a few words from a report that I found, a recent report looking at the impact of pornography on our culture. And it listed how pornography harms others in multiple ways. This is just a summary of some of the things it said. It says, porn teaches its consumers that women exist for the pleasure of men and that their purpose is to be degraded and dehumanized for men's excitement, and that they like it even if they pretend not to. But this is part of the lie. Countless women in porn are there against their will and are being exploited. And it went on to say that um, research has shown that between 60 and 80% of women in the sex industry are adult survivors of sexual abuse. And so rather than caring for them or expressing compassion for them and helping them heal, pornography traps them in a continued cycle of exploitation. Sadly as well, pornography fuels a broader sex industry. And just like any industry is fueled by demand, pornography fuels demand for the full spectrum in that industry. Perhaps one of the worst examples within it is sex trafficking. Again, the article here says that sex trafficking is one of the most profitable forms of human trafficking and involves many kinds of sexual exploitation such as prostitution, pornography, bride trafficking, and the commercial sexual abuse of children. According to the United Nations, sex trafficking brings in an estimated $32 million a year worldwide. In the United States, sexual trafficking brings in $9.5 billion annually. Those numbers should shock us and stir us. It is important, it goes on to recognize that this is not simply a men's issue, as over a quarter of people admitting internet sexual addiction are women. Approximately 9 out of 10 children between the ages of 8 and 16 have viewed porn on the internet. The average age of first internet exposure to pornography is 11. And in most cases, it is unintentional. The largest consumer of internet pornography is 12 to 17-year-old boys. These are just some... I wouldn't say highlights, lowlights from this article that I found. And so much so that certain states are declaring pornography a public health issue. And that made me think, 
in parallels to the cigarette industry. No, I'm not, not saying it's necessarily the same. Um, but imagine if the tobacco industry was based on the exploitation of workers. I'm not saying that it is, but imagine that it was. We are aware of, nowadays, more aware of the effects of passive smoking as well. And so I think of the effects of pornography, both in the direct impact it has on those who engage in the industry, but then also the passive effects on those around us, how we continue to fuel an industry that exposes our children to, be fall, to fall into those same traps. When the temptation of pornography presents itself to you, and if the lie is there that there's no harm to anyone, take hold of that thought, take it captive, and speak truth to it. That there are many people hurt through pornography. And take that moment to ask God to help you, to help you grow in your love for others. Just as he has shown love to you, enjoy his love and may it fill you up to love others. We are to enjoy God's pleasure in sexual purity both through self-control, by loving our neighbor, and finally, by fearing him above all. The rest of verse 6 to the end of our passage says, Because the Lord is an avenger in all of these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. The final motivation for sexual purity is from the fear of God, which rightly perceived should be stronger, should be far stronger than any desire to engage in sexual immorality. Now, I, if you're like me, I recognize that we can sometimes struggle to balance or blend in our minds God's attributes that don't at first glance seem to be in harmony. God's love and God's wrath, for example. But the Bible sees no conflict in holding out both motivations for walking in God's ways and is prepared to appeal to both, both to embrace God's blessing and God's pleasure, as well as to, to avoid God's vengeance, as in this passage today. You see, to engage in sexual immorality both disobeys God and disregards God. It disobeys God because he's given us explicit commands to his creatures on how sex is to be enjoyed in, in a particular context, in the context of marriage. And any other context, we are, he gives us, again, explicit commands to avoid that. It disregards God because it disregards who he is in terms of his authority over us, his authority to speak into our lives and to tell us what to do in the first place. And it disregards God because we disregard the power he gives us to walk out his commands. So what does this mean for the Christian? Isn't there now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, according to Romans 8.1? Well, amen, and yes, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have full forgiveness in Christ. And... John chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1 speaks of that if anyone claims to be without sin, he is a liar and the truth is not in us. And yet when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So that is true. And as Christians, we can enjoy and find solace in God's forgiveness for our sins and cleansing when we do. So how does that fit, though? with this idea as the Lord have, as an avenger? Well, I think it'd be helpful, it serves us, if we just to chat, flip forward a few pages in your Bible, but again, I have a slide showing us a few verses that Paul writes again to the Thessalonians in his second letter. In chapter 1, he writes, of when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer 
the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and of the glory of his might. So there's some similar ideas in there of the Lord as an avenger, and his vengeance is directed upon those who do not know God, which reminds us back to verse 5 of like the Gentiles, as we saw in today's passage. But he also said in in the verses we just read, those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. I don't know if that last phrase strikes as a little unusual. Obeying. We don't typically speak of the gospel as something to obey. Rather, we speak of the gospel as something to believe. But there, in the verses in 2 Thessalonians, Paul's talking about the gospel as something to obey. And what he's saying is, yes, there is, first and foremost, a truth to the gospel that we have to believe. But those who believe the gospel reveal themselves by their obedience to the gospel. They are no longer disobeying the instructions of God and no longer disregarding him as the authority over their lives. Rather, in obedience to the gospel, they are seeking to obey him and seeking to give him their full regard and are seeking to arrange their lives according to his instructions. And habitual disobedience to the instructions of God and a lack of care that we are disobeying God reveals that a person is really, actually, and terribly, not in Christ. They're not a Christian at all, and they're not a true gospel believer. And unless they repent and earnestly seek God's grace and mercy at the cross, and that their repentance is lived out through fruitfulness in growing sexual purity, they only have one prospect of meeting and seeing Jesus Christ. Not as a saviour but as the instrument of God's vengeance in the last and final judgment. For the Christian facing temptations to sexual immorality in the world around us, let God's vengeance against sin simply be another spur to holding fast to the hope that you have in Christ and another spur to the pleasure of walking in God's way as opposed to any other pleasure. Do not dabble in sin but treat it seriously and fearfully. And if you are not yet a Christian, or if you're hearing this and wondering that whether if your life, perhaps in claiming to be a Christian and yet not showing any obedience to the gospel, if you're hearing now that perhaps the prospect for you is simply to meet Jesus as an avenger, Let me hold out a word to you that Paul originally held out to the Thessalonians because he says, this is what we warned you, we solemnly warned you from the beginning. Can I humbly and ask you and solemnly warn you that now is the time to see Jesus not as an avenger but as a savior. Now is the time to fall before him and repent. Not just of sexual immorality, but of living a life in disregard before God. You may have sexual ethics all tidied away. That may not be an issue for you, and I'm pleased for you if that's the case. But if you do not have your knees submitted to Jesus Christ, then at the last time, there is only punishment and vengeance. So please, do not leave this morning without considering this very carefully. I implore you, Receive the grace available to you through Christ. Available to you now. I'd be happy to talk to you more about that afterwards if you'd like to. Brothers and sisters, let us enjoy God's pleasure walking in sexual purity through self-control, through loving our neighbor, and by fearing him above all. If I can ask the band to come up as I close. I recognize that it is entirely likely that this subject brings up wounds for some of us here this morning. Perhaps wounds from past sins, um, perhaps wounds that are still raw, perhaps sins committed by you, perhaps sin committed against you. I would encourage you and point you to remember the context of the words we've looked at this morning. This is not a word of rebuke, but a word of care to God's church. 
God sought and saved individuals in a culture embroiled in sexual immorality and called them to himself. He wasn't looking for perfect, spotless people to follow him. But he went into every corner of society sending his message of good news and hope. And he does that for us this morning. So you are not too far for God's hand to be upon you, to know his healing, to know his love, and to know his care, and to know his call to come back to him. And if you are wounded by sin, know that if you dealt with that in Jesus Christ, then it is gone. It is washed away. And there is particular comfort, I think, from the last verses, the last verse of verse 8. He talks about how God gives his Holy Spirit to you. He gives his Holy Spirit. It wasn't he once gave it to you when you first believed. There's a present tense. There is an ongoing giving of his Holy Spirit to you. Brothers and sisters, if you struggle with sexual sin... God gives you the power that brought Jesus Christ from the dead into your life. To walk in holiness before him. If you have been hurt, he breathes new life into you. And you're not alone. This is not some mystical power. This is God himself who is with you day by day, moment by moment, in the midst of those struggles and temptations, the Holy Spirit is there for you to help you. God loves you and sent his Son for you. Let us walk out in faithfulness and purity before him. Let me pray.